I was doing a like a PCR cleanup and you know there's lots of pipetting and I just put my phone out and I recorded it and I posted it on my personal page I don't know a year or maybe six months or something before I started my Instagram account and I was like this is what I do all day because people would ask what do you do as a PhD like is it a job like what are you actually doing and so I posted this video it's like a lot of the time I'm pipetting like small amounts of liquid into another you know micro centrifuge tube with very small amounts of liquid, clear liquid in it. And so um, I posted that video and people were like, oh cool, like that's, you know, it's cool, that's what you do. And then it's like, oh, maybe I should start like sharing this so people stop asking what, what do I do all the time? What do I, am I doing in the lab? That's really where it stemmed from. Um, now what made me take the plunge to actually start the account, I know I had, my husband's all like, he's an all or nothing, not all or nothing type of vibe, but he's like, just do it. Like, who cares? Just try, just do it. And I'm like, I was like, no, but what about this, 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 this? And so I had kept talking about it. He's like, just do it, just change your name. And I think I changed it and he had to click like set or like save because I was like, I can't do it. And <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that's, that's really where it all came from. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea that what it would turn into. Welcome to this new episode of Papa PhD. Today, I have the great pleasure of having with me Sarah Habibi. Dr. Sarah Habibi is a molecular biologist, educator, and digital content creator, and is the founder of the brand Science Bay. Sarah uses the power of social media to promote experimentation in STEAM and enhance student learning through her popular page Science Bay on Instagram and TikTok. Sarah uses her four-plus years of teaching and curriculum development experience, Bachelor of Education degree, PhD in Molecular Biology, and Ontario Certified Teacher designation to make her teaching educational, accessible, and engaging. Welcome to Papa PhD, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Me too. I'm super happy to have you here. Um, apart from everything else, just like your journey, like I was telling you before, this is like the week of three years of Papa PhD. So it's very special to me to to have you, someone I've followed on mainly on Instagram for a while, uh, and to to have you here today is is really special to me too. Yeah, I'm excited to celebrate this through your mark. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a big milestone, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm already thinking on how to make season four uh, different and uh, and better. But you know, that's how I guess you know how it is. You know, when you're a content creator, you always want to give better and better to your listeners or to oh, your yeah. followers. So so I'm I'm in that kind of a space now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Sarah, um, you know. I really quickly presented you, um, you know, very, in a very short bio, which, which uh, you know, shows people what your interests are, uh, where you're putting your energy. But uh, if if you if I asked you to add one thing to that list of things that I that I mentioned, so people know better who Sarah Habibi is, what would that thing be? I think that one thing would probably be. I mean, it's it's more like two things, but aside from being a scientist for how many years, I'm still a scientist and a content creator on social media and all the science and stuff that I do at home. I'm a big lover of like the outdoors and the wilderness. I grew up camping every single summer. It's something that I've brought. It's a tradition I brought to my family. And so, 
you know, I love camping and that's like my, that's my, you know, peaceful place. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, I, another thing that I love to do that I don't really put out there as much is yoga. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a certified yoga instructor. I haven't taught now since I had Noah, but I'm on, on a little bit of a leave, but I'm excited to go back into that. It's like good for your mind, your body, your soul, like everything. Mm -hmm. I sound so cliche right now, but that's like something I don't share as much, but like I'm super outdoorsy and I love, I love my yoga. And so Mm -hmm. that's what I do on my, you know, the little bit of downtime, I guess, that I get. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just, I saw a, a post from you really not long ago. And uh, it looks like when you were like younger, I don't know if teenager, because I didn't, mm-hmm. anyway, I didn't go uh, that deep exploring, but that you were a skater. Is that, is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, so I think I might've uh, miscommunicated. So I was a skater, but like skateboard, not mm-hmm. skater as in roller skate. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think I wasn't, that because I know somebody commented on my TikTok, they thought I was a actual like rollerblader. Oh. And then it was so deep in the conversation that I was like, oh my God. And then I realized <laughs> I thought I was a rollerblader. I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, I tried to skateboard. I wasn't actually a good skateboarder, but um, it was during that, it was phase, an interest. that punk rock. It was an interest. Yeah. yeah. It was that punk rock phase, like when I was, I don't know, 13 to 15 years old or something. Mm-hmm. Everyone was wearing like loving Avril Lavigne and like yes. wear, like dyeing their hair pink and like wearing the black t-shirts and ties and trying to skateboard and so that was that was my identity mm-hmm. back then. No, I find it interesting <laughs> because uh, I I know that in life I've met people who who, have, who think or have this idea that an identity is you know you're you're something and then you keep being that something throughout life mm-hmm. and no there's phases and there's a uh, there's uh, the the identity grows and is something that you sculpt as uh, along the way. We're going to go into the conversation about becoming a science communicator, but I wonder and I'm going to ask this question because my answer is often to the same question people are not don't expect it, but I'm going to ask it to you first. Do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Or an ambivert? <laughs> I am a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I appear as an extrovert, but I'm an extrovert when I know situations and I know people. When I'm thrown into a place where I don't know anyone, I am like super introverted. And I, when I go to a new place, I rely on my husband to start those conversations. Okay. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like to myself, I'll like look at my phone because I'm just so awkward and introverted in that way. But how I appear on social media is like very extroverted. But I think it's because it's a safe space for me and I'm comfortable. I know it. And when I'm around people, I know I'm really good at um you know putting myself out there mm-hmm. but yeah so I'm a, I'm a little bit of both I would say it's interesting I my answer would be similar to yours uh, I'm more on the introverted side but uh, I think why I think this question is interesting to our conversation today is because uh people often will say oh I'm an introvert science communication is not for me mm-hmm and what you just said of finding you know learning a way to to do your science communication finding a safe space i think mm-hmm. opens up this activity to anyone introvert extrovert or or whichever oh yeah oh totally because i mean when i'm doing the stuff at home when i'm doing my content it's just me it's me and the camera and so i can turn it on i can do it even when i go out to events or i'm talking in person um 
it's still different. It's almost like you're put, you're like on a show or you, you have to do this like, you know, 15 minute hour long, five minute segment. And mm -hmm. it's like, you turn it on and you do it. But then when I'm off the camera or off of the event, then it's like, my introvertedness comes back and I was like, oh, I have to talk to people. And it's, it's weird. It's, it, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. So would you say that it's kind of a learned uh, ability, uh, a learned skill to kind of move into this space of I can, I can act extroverted and then uh, when it's needed and then fall back into your natural way of being when you're, when those skills are not needed. Do you look and you learn it and strengthen that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely something that you can learn. And I mean, I look at I look at things that I did when I first started, and I almost cringe when I look <laughs> at them. It's, it's your growth as like, every time you do uh, an appearance or every time you do an activity or anything like any piece of content that you create, you're always learning, you're getting better. And so it's definitely a learned skill that you will um, achieve over mm. time. But that's not to say that when you first start, it's not going to be you're not going to do amazing. You are it's just you're going to grow into yourself and you're going to grow into your voice and um, what you feel comfortable doing and not doing. And yeah, that's, that's really the beauty of it. Because you don't have to be like you said, you don't have to be an extrovert mm -hmm. to be able to do science communication, you can be like, I know people who are super introverted, and they don't even have their face behind their science communication, they have like, thousands, tens of thousands of followers mm -hmm. because that's just, that's what works for them. And yeah. their audience loves it. And they connect with an audience that is in, you know, in a similar area. Yeah. So it's interesting because one thing that I, I think happens is people, when they start thinking of doing something like this, they compare themselves to what they like or to what they follow. And it, it, you know, it's okay to know what's around, but I think comparison is often a trap because you can be looking at someone who's been doing it for 10 years. You can uh, be looking some to, at someone who had, who's had training or who has a team. There's so, there's so much that's hidden then, you know, compared to that like movie that, or that short, um, that short that, that, that you're, that you're watching. And, uh, I really like that that you say that you say uh, what you what you just said that that you can do you basically do you mm -hmm. and there's people out there who who like the flavor of what you do of what you mm -hmm. do so mm -hmm. I think it's a point it's funny I hadn't thought of of talking about this but I think it's one it can be one big blocker for people wanting to launch themselves into science communication and uh, and I think uh, after what you said I think anyone uh, introverted or not can can allow themselves to to do them you know do you oh, yeah and and then start to do one thing do to do two things you'll get better you'll grow into it like you said I agree. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mean, social media doesn't really help with the whole comparison factor because there's there's the likes, there's the views, there's the follower count. And you don't know like how long they've been doing this, how many of their followers are, you know, authentic followers mm -hmm. versus not. Or like, uh, is their content even reaching an audience? Because uh, Instagram has weird things with their algorithms. And so sometimes you're not able to reach like the large audience that you're hoping. And so when you start looking at the numbers, then you can really go down into like a dark hole of mm. like comparison. And I mean, I still even do it sometimes, but I also, I've, I'm growing to see the bigger picture and that it's not about like a week or even a year of content and numbers. It's about like that long-term goal. What's your long-term goal? What are you trying to achieve in like five, 10 years from now? Mm -hmm. Not this week. It's okay if your one post doesn't do well. What can you learn from it? Yeah. And so 
that's uh but yeah that comparison factor is is really tough to navigate on social media yeah so don't look at numbers at least for the first couple of years <laughs> oh yeah no no <laughs> so sarah now going back to to um after talking about this which i think is is an important thing going back to your journey um even your academic journey is kind of varied. You know, they have you have a, a part, a bachelor's in education, and you you followed actually training and certification uh, in in mm-hmm. education, and and then I don't, I'm not sure uh, on the, the 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 temporality of it, but then you get a PhD in molecular biology. I'm really really curious on how that uh, transpired and um, and what what brought you to want to do a PhD. Yeah, I mean, well, I starting back to when I entered university, the program that I was enrolled in was called concurrent education. And so it was a five year double bachelor's degree. So it was a bachelor's of science and a bachelor's of education. And so I went into that. And essentially, you did your first four years, which is a bachelor of science. And I had some education courses mixed into that every year. And then you graduate from the bachelor's of science, and then you do your bachelor's of education. And I kind of lucked out in the sense because I was in the program when Ontario, the province that I'm in, when they transitioned to a two-year bachelor's of education program. But because I was already enrolled in the program that only had one year, I was able to do it in one year. And so that's part of the reason why I actually continued on to do it because in my fourth year i did a thesis project working in a research lab the research lab that i soon went on to do my phd in and i fell in love with it i was like okay i've been in the classroom i don't necessarily think this is what i want to do there was a whole surplus of teachers at the time when i was graduating the likelihood of me getting a job was pretty small and so um i was like i need to do something else i love the research and with this maybe i can teach at the college or university level when I graduate. And so, um, you know, my, my dad is a high school teacher and he was like, but you still need to do your B.Ed. You can't, you can't, you know, just um, throw that year away and it's one year, you know, just do it. And so I did it. I'm so grateful that I did it um, because the stuff that I learned that I'm using for what I do now mm-hmm. is like, so it, it's, it's really crucial and really helpful. And so, I did that and then I went straight into a master's degree. I knew I wanted to do a PhD. And so at my university, there's after one year of master's, if you had significant progress in your project and if you had, um, if you know, they saw that your project could be turned into a four-year PhD, then you could go through and you could um, do a PhD candidacy exam, apply to transition into your PhD. And so after one year of master's, I transferred into my PhD directly. Um, I knew I wanted to do a PhD from day one. My supervisor knew I wanted to. And me, I'm all I'm always thinking about time. And so I'm like, I need to do this in the most efficient time possible. <laughs> and course. so um, of course the experience is something in itself. But I'm like, I don't I don't want this to drag out, you know, like five, six, seven years, um, because that just doesn't work with the my life planning. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I transitioned right in and I was fortunate I was put on a project where there was a lot of like novelty in it and there was a lot of area for me to um, publish results and like go to conferences and all of that and I was very motivated to do that and so yeah I I did my PhD and then graduated and here we are now I graduated and I didn't go into academia I tried for a little bit but life kind of 
hit me in a different way. And um, yeah, I think we're going to get into that probably in another in a little bit. But that's that was my academic journey, at least to get to where I am now. And I graduated my PhD in I defended at the end of 2020. Okay, so in within the COVID, uh, the COVID. Yeah, yeah, I took COVID happened at probably I know it's gonna people are gonna hate me for saying this, but it happened at a really good time for me, I guess. I was at a point in my research where I could wrap up, but there was still the chance to maybe do more experiments. Mm -hmm. But because COVID happened, and I wasn't allowed in the lab, I took that chance to write my final paper, write my final dissertation. And like, I just gave it to my supervisor that summer of 2020. I was like, hey, I'm done. I want to defend. I want to graduate. And he's like, but what about this, this, and this? And I'm like, well, you know, uh, there's not really an opportunity to do that. There's no, my thesis is completely done. My committee's on board. So let's do it. And so I really pushed for that. And mm -hmm. thankfully it worked out. It worked out. Yeah. So you said yeah. something really, really, that, that for me is really, really important. And that when you're in graduate school, it's not a it's not a message that you get you know from your from the environment from your your yeah, I, i'm generalizing of course different supervisors might might actually tell you your life plans are important but i don't think it's a, a widespread thing and you seem to be self driven in having some you know some sort of blueprint of what you wanted to happen in your life mm -hmm. in the next 5 mm -hmm six i don't know you know x yeah. years can you talk a little bit about that maybe what why you why you wanted you know why you had this blueprint and 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 uh and why you didn't want to fall out of 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 this time frame that you had set for yourself and mm -hmm. how it it made it um how it made you take these decisions of okay you know what i'm going to finish now and i'm going to close this chapter and go to the next one because I think a lot of people are kind of buffeted left and right by you know demand you know external demands and difficulties that you get, and everyone does in the PhD, and they can maybe you know end up end up extending it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I I think that having coming in with a plan is mu a much much better approach. And I'm not saying that I did that, but. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've always been a planner. Ask my parents, I've always, you know, and they've always tried to teach me, you know, things won't always necessarily go as planned, and you have to be able to pivot. And I totally agree with that. But I also, when I was going into my PhD, I knew the time commitment it was going to take. At the time, I was in a very serious relationship, I knew that we were going to get married at some point during my PhD. Okay. Um, and I knew that, you know, part of my own life planning was I wanted to start a family. And doing what I was doing, going into a four-year PhD that had potential to maybe be extended, that wasn't really an option for me because like a lot of women or um, other, you know, people in academia who want to start families, you're looking at your academic clock of like getting your academics done, but you're also looking at your biological clock. Mm -hmm. And for me, I... I really wanted to have a child before I was 30. And I know, you know, I know so many people having children after 30 and that's completely fine. There's like so much, you know, there's so much research and technology out there to support that. But personally, I wanted to have one before I was 30. And so that being said, I was like, well, if I start my PhD at this time, I'm going to be 28 when I graduate, yeah. then I know. <laughs> and so that was, that was a big driver for me. And because I had that timeline in my head, I was very, 
I was very efficient with my time during my PhD. Like there were days and, you know, you know, if my experiments were going well. I did a lot of testing in frog eggs. That was like the okay. primary, um, that's how I got the majority of like my results. And so my final results. And so if the eggs were doing well, I would stay in the lab to like, 10 11 o'clock at night to like collect that data because it could be another two weeks it could be another two months until i get eggs that will give me that kind of results again oh, and wow. so i i really i when things were good i like rode the highs and when things were low i just like you know powered through but that that timeline was a big motivator for me and also i'm with the research that I, the results that I collected and the potential papers that I could write, all of those, like, I mean, this is to all grad students out there. If your supervisor says like, no, just wait, we'll write the paper later. Just write it now. Like you have the results, you can make the figures, you can do the research, just write it now. Cause I feel like so many people get toggled along mm -hmm. because their supervisor's like, they don't have time for it. So they're trying you know, not to have more work put on their plate. And so they're telling you to hold off. But for me, I was like, that's not an option for me. I'm writing these papers and I'm sending you to them to you. And we're getting this out because I like it's, it helps you as a grad student too, to progress in your, you know, in your studies. And so I didn't really take no for an answer. He would say, <laughs> no, let's like hold off. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to write this paper. Because then when I send it to you, what are you going to say? Oh, no, you have a full paper in front of you. Of course, you're going to want to publish it. So um, that was... Yeah, I was very like self-driven and um, yeah, I had a supervisor who was pretty like hands off who let me do my thing. And so I just I just took the took charge and did what I had to do to graduate. I really love that because it's counterintuitive. You know, you go you get into a PhD, well, depending also on, on whether, you, you know, you're a, a first generation going into a PhD and not having anyone mm -hmm. tell you, the, you know, show you the ropes uh, and, mm -hmm. and depending on your approach to authority also you know mm -hmm. saying saying no to your supervisors no can be hard for some for some people mm -hmm. but I, I think what you you put you did a a really good job making a case of hey, don't listen to that and r mm -hmm. write what write what you have if you have something to write because yeah. uh because you're gonna move the you know you're gonna move your project forward and you, it's gonna, it's, an, it's a question of efficiency. You know, you now is the moment you're ready to write it. You've just had the data. It's and and then anyway, I I, I really think yeah. and agree with that. It's a loss of time and of opportunity to wait. Wait, yeah, and you don't necessarily have to say no. I mean, I don't think I've ever, I've never straight up said no to my supervisor, but I'll just say okay, okay, and then like nod, nod and smile, and then go and do <laughs> yeah, do, do the it. other thing. Really and so it. yeah. All right, so so now let's think about this time of the PhD because I I believe if if my if I, my research is is right that Science Bay or whatever became Science Bay was born during your PhD. Yeah, yeah. So I was in my, um, my second year of my PhD, I was on route, I was leaving for a conference um, in Florida. And I was like, you know, I've been, I've been talking about it for probably at least two years prior to that before I actually started it. And then I was like, you know what, I just need to do it. I'm going to this conference, like, let's like, let's do this. And so I changed my name to Science Bay. Um, I had a personal account, I only had like a couple hundred followers. And so I changed my name to Science Bay. I started now like publishing content of, you know, what I do in the lab and like, um, different, 
you know, explaining different, the science behind say like an agarose gel or like what's DNA and like little things like that. And soon when I started doing that, I started seeing a few other people in the area or in the same um, niche in the same community who were doing the same thing. And they were calling it science communication. Mm -hmm. And I had not, I didn't even know the term science communication before I started doing it until I started doing it. And I saw there's a whole community of people communicating science on social media. And so I connected with them. I started following them and seeing, you know, that's, that's kind of how it stemmed. And then over time, it, you know, as I, I started incorporating more personal stuff in there as I got married during my PhD. And then I, you know, I focused on my research. And as I started publishing, I started sharing that. And then with grants, I started sharing that. And then once I graduated my whole PhD defense, I was like sharing that. Mm -hmm. But then something that I, I, feel the need to say here and it's something you had actually touched on at the beginning that you know you're you're not just going your likes and interests aren't just going to stay um you know stagnant or you know they're not gonna it's not gonna be linear you're going to have a lot of changes mm -hmm. in your own journey and that's something that I realized when I was graduating my PhD that my page I had built my page on the basis of doing grad school but grad school is such a short period of your life. And yes, a lot of people may treat it as like a personal, it is a personal blog, but I was getting to the point where I'm like, this isn't, this isn't a personal blog for me anymore. Like this is something I see that this could be something else. And so I had to almost like, well, not almost, I did. I had to pivot and figure out how can I now transition this into something that has, you know, I, I can do it long term mm -hmm. and it'll follow like my life long term because I'm not working in a research lab anymore like that 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 door is closing and so what what's the next progression and so um you know I I, I went I did a lot a lot of back and forth in my head when I was graduating because I was applying for academic jobs and I said to myself okay if I get this I got I got to the final round of interviews for a tenure track position at a university um, in Toronto. And it was like a dream position. It was doing science communication research. It was, oh, wow. it was teaching like in their biology department. It was a huge thing. I was like, this is it. This is my calling. This is what I'm going to do. Like I had such a good connection with them. Everything was great. I thought I was going to get the job. And then like, as the days went on after that final interview, um, final two day interview, these tenure track interviews are like crazy long. Um, I started to realize like, okay, this is taking a little long. Like, I don't think I got the job. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was the point where I felt a little defeated because I had been applying for so many jobs and nothing was working. And I kept saying, if I get this job, I'm going to stop my social media. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to deactivate the account. I'm going to dedicate myself to academics. And it wasn't, it wasn't happening. I wasn't getting a job. And so it's like, darn, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> so maybe the social media thing is a thing. Maybe there's potential there. Yeah. And so that's when I decided I'd also found out I was pregnant. And I was like, well, now nobody's going to want to hire me if they find out I'm pregnant. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was like, let's pivot. Let's do science. Let's do science communication on social media full time. And that's when honestly, things just started happening. Like mm -hmm. it just, it just blew up and I was like, okay, this is it. I got to do this. <laughs> so, so what's interesting to me in, in what you just told and, and I, you know, now having done Papa PhD for three years and having seen studies on outcomes, like professional outcomes for PhDs, you know, I have this number of like 15, 20% of people who get tenure track 
positions after the PhD, and then the other eighty percent, maybe thirty of those have you know uh, academia adjacent, you know, other positions in university, and then fifty percent completely do something else. And now you know, and I think people don't know this when they get into a PhD. It's not something that's at least that I've seen being shared profusely uh, to first-year PhD uh, researchers. Um, the story you're telling kind of represents that, which is even if you're yeah. great, you're a great candidate, and then you you know you got to the end of this grueling, you know, long interview process, and it you know it didn't it fizzled out in a way. But you're really the embodiment of something that I that I've that I'm trying to whenever I have these conversations with students or when, when I'm writing something for them or it, which is. Uh, doing something um, like what you did, which was create Science Bay and, 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 and grow it and nurture it throughout your PhD opened another door for you when that door closed. Exactly, exactly. You couldn't have said it better. Science Bay grew like it was a stepwise growth. You started small, you know. You, you, uh, you were like, like you said, and it's funny. You brought me back to my lab years. Agros gels. What is it? How blah blah blah. How how does it work, etc. But one thing I'd like to know, and and we kind of breezed, or you you went uh, straight through it. Was what was what what was the day? Because you said you weren't on this trip for a conference, and you said, okay, today mm -hmm. I'm starting it. But mm -hmm. what was the process before? When was this, I, this idea born of, I need to do this thing, which is kind of uh, uh, making a video journal-ish mm -hmm. of what I do in the lab? Yeah, honestly, it was, I think I had posted, I was doing a, like a PCR cleanup and, you know, there's lots of pipetting mm -hmm. and I, rec I just put my phone out and I recorded it and I posted it on my personal page. Um, like maybe, I don't know, a year or maybe six months or something before I started my Instagram account. And I was like, this is what I do all day because people would ask, what do you do as a PhD? Like, mm -hmm. is it a job? Like, what are you actually doing? <laughs> and so job? I posted this video. It's like, a lot of time I'm pipetting like small amounts of liquid into another, <laughs> you know, micro centrifuge tube with very small amounts of liquid, clear liquid in it. And so um, I posted that video and people were like, oh, cool. Like that's, you know, it's cool. That's what you do. And then it's like, oh, maybe I should start like sharing this. So people stop asking what, what do I do all the time? What do I, <laughs> am I doing in the lab? And that's, that's really where it stemmed from. Um, now what made me take the plunge to actually start the account. I know I had, my husband's all like, he's an all or nothing, not all or nothing type of vibe. But he's like, just do it. Like, who cares? Just try, just do it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I was like, no, but what about this, 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 this? And so I had kept talking about it. He's like, just do it. Just change your name. And I think I changed it and he had to click like <laughs> set or like save because I was like, I can't do it. And <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that's that's really where it all came from. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea that what it would turn into. And I mean, yeah, followers have like grown. And since I graduated my PhD, like my follower growth, you know, it, it primarily happened while I was in grad school. Mm -hmm. And then after I finished, like, that's when I've kind of, I've now kind of been stable on Instagram. TikTok is still um, doing well, like in terms of growth. But for me, I've 
I don't really focus so much on the numbers anymore because the numbers on Instagram like that doesn't matter as much. If you're able to turn it into a business and actually monetize it, that that's how I'm kind of like gauging success, mm -hmm. not so much like the numbers. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I kind of pivoted there, but no, no, it's like fine. Bit. It's <laughs> fine, and, and 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 it's it's. I think it's the right moment to do that because you know that the, the theme, the subject today was. Uh, how to, how to you know how to make a full time job out of science communication? Um, I'm just going to tell the people watching and listening that those who have of you who have kids that Sarah has a um, surprise for you. So if you if you keep listening, she will share something that something cool that that she uh, that she uh, uh, that she has for you. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to say what it is. I'm going to tell, let her say later on. Plus, she has a book coming up. We'll we'll talk about that later. But I think the pivot to how to monetize and how to make it a professional endeavor. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's the right moment for it because, um, for you. So, like I, I was saying, you finish your PhD, the 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 academic job didn't materialize, and somehow you had. Create already, you know, such um, a corpus of, of of content that you could just turn to that and say, okay, this might be my my professional journey. It might be based on what I did through throughout these years. Um, but so this is this is a thought, you know, this is a reflection. But yeah, how how was it that you um, navigated this new space of uh, of like be making it a business uh being in mm -hmm. contact contact with uh corporate partners or sponsors uh mm -hmm. because it's really far departed from academia right mm -hmm. it's a different lingo uh it's a different skill set can you talk a little bit about how when you said okay this didn't work how was it that then from this realization of you know what this might be my avenue what was, what were the the next first steps towards making it what it is today science bay yeah so i mean it it really happened the conversation happened in my garage i was cleaning out the garage my husband and i was you know ranting and talking about all these ideas and i was like maybe i should like try this he's like just just do it like do it full time and so I, at that moment, I was like, I need to figure this out. I'm like three months pregnant. I'm going to have a baby. I have no job. I I need to, and I, this is something that's been working. Let's, let's try it. So from that point, because applying for jobs, it's very time consuming, especially academic jobs. It's like ridiculously time consuming. It's a full-time job a in of, itself. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I'm going to stop applying for jobs completely. And I'm going to go full-fledged content creation. Okay. And at the time, I had already gotten a few brand deals. And that was something I knew I could, there was potential there. And there were a few potential ones coming up. And so I thought, I just need to go and like, you know, make content full time, not this like post once in a while, like I need to post consistently, figure out what my brand is, what who's my target audience. And so I went through all of that. And then in terms of like turning it into something like being able to monetize it, well, my first big brand deal, I guess, was head and shoulders back at the beginning. I think it actually was in 2019. Mm -hmm. Was it 2020? I can't remember. But 
basically when you work with these types of brands like head and shoulders is a png brand procter and gamble they uh you know they're a house they has a whole bunch of different um uh care products mm-hmm. and so when they when you work with these brands you're not working with them necessarily i'm not talking to head and shoulders i'm talking to a pr firm who is representing head and shoulders mm-hmm. And oftentimes these PR firms, they're not just representing one brand, they're representing multiple brands. Okay. And so for example, the one who handles PNG products, they handle a lot of different PNG products. And so I saw this as an opportunity to connect with somebody who's working and you know, they're the middle person. They're trying to find content creators to make this content for the brands that they are mm-hmm. um, they're managing. And so that's where you need to put your networking skills to the test and you need to take everything you learned from when you were in grad school and you're just networking and talking with people and building really strong relationships because i put in the effort to build a strong relationship with that pr firm and show them you know be very professional answer your emails like in a very timely manner you know you know very uh nice like dialogue back and forth and just very professional mm-hmm. if i can say that and that's you know not only does that look good to the brand but that also is like really good for the um the pr manager who you're working with firsthand because they want to work with somebody who's easy to work with of course. right like if they're trying to chase after a content creator and you're giving them like you know half done stuff or um you're, you know, taking three days to respond to an email or, you know, you're not putting your all into this content, then it's going to make their job harder. And so they're probably less likely wanting to work with you again for that brand. It could, it doesn't matter if the brand loves you, the brand will have a whole bunch of other creators that they're fine to work with. And so I think the main point of contact that manage that middle person is who you really need to put time and energy in nurturing the relationship because if they like working with you they're more likely to bring you to these brands that they have campaign opportunities for and so that's kind of where that's where it started and um i you know i've just been fortunate enough to build these relationships and have them kind of look at me as the person who is going to make fun, engaging content, mm. but also share the science behind it. And now having the mother aspect and having Noah and um, all of that really helps. But um, in terms of getting deals like this, I think it's really helpful that I put my face out there and I make this type of content already. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many different areas, whether you're, if you're a PhD and you like fashion blogging or cooking, like there's always areas for you to, um, to monetize it's just figuring out if say i'm i want to change gears a little bit because people see the content i make but if somebody is like loves cooking well look at what a um uh like a food product or a food line or a grocery store like what's the type of content they're putting on their social media and see what content creators they're working with and if you're in that cooking niche try and start creating content they call this branded content personal branded content that will fit what a brand would naturally ask for Mm -hmm. so that if potentially a brand is looking for a creator for a campaign they come across your profile they see oh they're making this kind of content that would work well for selling our product Mm -hmm. or like educating on our this um new beyond meat or whatever it is you know and so that i find helpful now i create content and i'm always thinking okay what's the content that i love creating for my audience but also how could this be used to help educate on 
just, you know, something else that a partner would want to work mm -hmm. on. So just out of curiosity, those first, uh, you said the first um, sponsorships or, or partnerships mm -hmm. came up before, so while you were in your PhD. How, does, how did mm -hmm. those transpire? Did this... Uh, this ad agency reach out to you or was it, or did you reach out to them? How, how, how did that happen? Those first conversations? They, they actually reached out to me and, um, and that's, that's how it started. And actually most of the, almost all the brands that I've worked, actually all of them, um, reach out to me. But I think that happens at the beginning. It's a little slow. You might have one or two, but then once, like I said, once these, agencies know who you are and they know the content you make they just keep they just keep coming back for new new campaigns if you are good and professional and you deliver good content and if you nurture that relationship you, you stay top of mind top of mind on their exactly. side exactly that that's super interesting so what would you say um for, imagine someone who's already been developing i don't know it could be a twitter uh, a twitter account a blog or a or even a podcast anyway for x years what would you say is was the key um reason is the word the first word that comes to me but the key um element of what you what you were doing as content what you were putting out there that attracted those first eyes you know uh, of those agencies onto your channel and onto what you were doing i'm just thinking of uh what advice we might share with the, the people watching and listening on how to and you already talked about the the step after nurture these relationships be professional mm -hmm. but how do you get seen what what yeah and i think consistency might be one of them it's the one i think first but maybe other other ones that you think of yeah i mean consistency in your posting is um is really big but also you know look at the keywords that you have in your profile because oftentimes i like to ask um when a brand reaches out to me i like to ask how they found me mm. um just for my own you know my own knowledge and a lot of the time they have these systems that where they can literally they can search geotag okay toronto they can search science and they can or stem and they can search woman okay. or like mother or whatever and then they get a list of creators who have those like keywords say in their bio um that will come up and so that's one good way of getting seen and recognized always geotag on your posts so when you're posting um on instagram tag like if you're in toronto toronto ontario if you're in canada canada the us wherever just tag where you are because that also helps to bring visibility to your page um but also just you know i think i think putting yourself out there and like being on camera and making like really nice content that a brand could easily see their content fit into it mm -hmm. um, or their messaging fit into it that will also help because if you are going to be pitching brands or pitching pr firms which a lot of people do and you will find a lot of success in that you need to show them that you're actually capable of like you know getting their message across mm -hmm. and so whether you take really beautiful pictures or you make really beautiful like highlight reels or um educational videos consistently put that content out there so it's really easy for a brand to see that they can work with you or how that relationship would work and so that's i mean i put educational videos out there and so a lot of the partnerships that i do are educational in nature and that you know i think that 
that aspect helps. Mm -hmm. And now I have a question, and we were reaching the end of the interview, and uh, I really want to share uh, your 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 gift to people, uh, and also share how people can reach you. But um, I'm thinking if they if they got to you through your profile, has uh, the the PhD, you know, being a PhD, had a positive or negative impact on some conversations with with people mm. from a non-academic space i'm thinking because i'm asking this question because often um and in my case in on papa phd often i talk about people think, talking with potential employers outside academia and how sometimes there's mm -hmm. a disconnect and there's a an um an unknown of what a phd is and brings etc cetera, etc cetera. and i'm wondering mm -hmm. if on your side in in your experience being a, a scientist having this background if it has a, a, an effect, positive or negative, in the conversations you have in this professional domain? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely has a positive effect on it, um, just primarily because it gives you that authenticity, that legitimacy. Like, I have mm -hmm. my PhD in, in science. I have my bachelor's of education. I'm a trained teacher. And so all of these things really help when... If you look at it at the end of the day, even if I'm doing educational campaigns for, for example, I work with the American Cleaning Association, I'm talking about laundry and like proper laundry hygiene um, when somebody's sick in the house. And so something like that, I'm not necessarily selling a product, but I'm educating. And so somebody is more likely to listen to what I'm saying because I have the credentials to back up what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And so that definitely plays into, I would say, a positive. Um, now with other employers, I think sometimes the PhD, you could be viewed as um, overqualified uh, in some regards. But in terms of social media, like anything to make you look like, yes, she is legit and she has a, she's credible and all of that, I think really, really does help. Excellent. Uh, it's super interesting yeah. because, uh, and, and I think you you've mentioned you've you've mentioned everything that it, depending like on on this side it, it gives you credibility in in conversations with employers unless there are already employers who hire PhDs and and kind of know <laughs> what they what they bring to the table it can mm -hmm. be uh, it can be an obstacle that you need to work on before going to have that conversation but now I'm, I'm getting back to the the, the classical Papa PhD <laughs> subject which is not why we're here today so Sarah we're really getting to to the end of the interview and um, yeah you have something to share with the people who are watching or or with listeners um, mm -hmm. that you're offering on your platform can you share that and then tell them what's the best way to reach out to you if they want to ask some more questions if they want to dig into something that we talked about today of course well thank you um i have a weekly newsletter that comes out every week where i am sharing a full science experiment activity package every week straight to your inbox um, and in addition to that i am looking at the latest research in stem education the latest news in stem education and science education and i'm summarizing that news and sending it out to you in this weekly newsletter as well so if you want to stay up to date with all things stem education and also get a full-on activity lab report activity pack for a different science experiment every week 
for the children or even the parents in your life, the students in your life, if you're a teacher, um, then sign up for my weekly newsletter. That link is in my bio. And if you sign up right away, um, right away, you're going to get actually a really big activity pack for a really one of my favorite um, DNA extraction activities. Mm -hmm. And so if you right when you sign up, you already get something and then ongoing every week, you're going to get even more. And then on top of that, I also um, David mentioned this at the beginning, but I have my book that is coming yes. out at the end of the year. Pre-sales we're hoping to start in the fall. So keep an eye out for that on my social media. Mm. Um, I'm on Instagram and TikTok at science.bay. That's primarily where I am. And this is book is going to be a science experiment activity book for your children, um, ages eight to 12 years old. Okay. And it's, it's really, it's very different from every other science or STEM activity book that is on the market. And I'm just going to say that you'll learn more about that though, when it comes out. Oh, I'm curious. Do you have a working title? Yes, I do. It's Noah's fascinating world oh. of STEM experiments. Yes. <laughs> Love it. There's a little boy in the book guiding you along. And yes, it's my son. Super. So so th that's great. Uh, so I'm also for people watching on YouTube, the, the contacts are like scrolling here. And so if people go to sarahhabibi.com, they'll find the link for the newsletter there. Yes, they will. Excellent. Yes. Sarah, this was a great conversation. See, we spent almost an hour in, instead of the 40-ish minutes I say, I'd said, but there's so much to talk about. Okay. <laughs> I know. I talk a lot. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Very fast. Well, it was, it was, it was great. Uh, thanks for sharing uh, all, all your uh, story and, 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 and the journey because I think sharing stories is kind of the best way to, to make people learn and engage because they can identify. And I think someone who might be at the beginning before listening, you know, saying, oh, it's not for me, or saying, oh, I'm an introvert, uh, uh, I'm not going to make it in this space, and saying, oh, but, uh, you know, you can't, you can't uh, make science communication uh, your, your full-time job. I think we've debunked all of that, mm -hmm. and uh, I really want to thank you for that. And, um, and yeah, it, it was great to have you on Papa PC. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I love this conversation. I mean, I think we could have talked for hours if we wanted, oh but um, <laughs> I'm hoping that your audience gets um, learned something new from this and get something in it. Not anything is inspired to, you know, take the plunge and go through that door and open that new opportunity. I want to thank Sarah again for her time and for all she shared on this episode of Papa PhD. And I want to thank you, the listener for being here with us week after week. If you don't do yet, follow Papa PhD on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram. It's at Papa PhD Podcast. Uh, also, if you like YouTube, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. We just crossed 200 and uh, it'd be great to have you in the group too. So thank you and see you next week for another episode of Papa PhD.